as, uh, as far as Christmas characters go, the one that we are about to consider and listen to this morning is not normally associated with this time of year. You don't tend to see him or an image of him in many nativity scenes. Mary, yes. Joseph, yes. Donkeys, angels, shepherds, wise men, yes. But John the Baptist, not so much. Mainly it's because of his dress sense and his diet. And yet on this, the second Sunday of Advent, during this season of preparation is in the run-up to Christmas. The Bible reading for today in many church traditions, and the one that we are going to turn to, is all about Him. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read the first 12 verses in a moment. And part of the reason that we can and should include John the Baptist during Advent is because of his role in the big story, because John the Baptist's role is in preparing the way for Jesus. He is, you could say, if it's not too crass, he is the warm-up act for the headline artist. Plus, isn't it really interesting, and it really struck me this week afresh, I don't know if I've thought about this before, but isn't it really interesting how in the other Gospels, in the next three in the New Testament, all of them include a reference to John the Baptist in their very first chapters. So if you've got a Bible open on a device, go over to Mark chapter 1. And this is what it says in the very first verse. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And so you're waiting to hear about a prophecy regarding Jesus. And what does Mark go on to say? I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight path for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Mark has got nothing about the birth of Jesus. Absolutely nothing. The beginning of the good news about Jesus starts with a camel skin wearing, locust eating wilderness preacher. Turn over to Luke. Luke starts his gospel, chapter one, by telling us about how the birth of John the Baptist was predicted. Really early on in his first chapter, he's already telling us about how John the Baptist's birth was foretold. And then if you go over to John, now not the John the Baptist we're thinking about, but the Apostle John, if you go over to his fourth gospel and his rather unique telling of the Christmas story, how he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us or moved into our neighborhood, John the Apostle also introduces John the Baptist before his first chapter ends. There's no shepherds in John, there's no wise men in John, there's no manger in John, there's no star in John, but there is John the Baptist. And so, if you're up for doing something different this year, here's what I want you to do. Why don't you make a figure of John the Baptist, right? Which could be fun. And plant him right in the middle of your nativity scenes. Because I'll guarantee it will get people talking. Do it. Now, in terms of 
preparation for Jesus. I mean, if he was the one preparing the way for Jesus. Well, in terms of preparation, it's his message that demands our attention. It certainly grabbed people's attention first time round way back then. But it's a message that although sometimes is portrayed as harsh and aggressive and judgmental and oppressive, is actually a message of incredible hope and exciting potential. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that John the Baptist's message is a message of love in the extreme, which is not how I think it's always heard. But it's a message of love in the extreme because it provides and it offers for all those willing to listen, including us, the opportunity to change. To change for the better, radically better. Plus, and this is important, John the Baptist's message, and we must not miss this, John the Baptist's message is exactly the same. It's the identical message, word for word, as Jesus brought as we're about to see. Now, it is true that as we read this text, which we will do in a moment, that John does sound at a certain point rather hostile and antagonistic and in your face. He doesn't pull any punches during his preach as he refers to some people as a pack of pythons, a brood of vapors. But it is really important, and I think we've missed this, it's really important to recognize who he targets and who he is speaking to at that particular point. John the Baptist has been described by some, and this is great, although slightly unfortunate, he's been described by some as the Doberman pincher of the gospel. He's the one who sinks his teeth into you. He's the one who shakes your soul around and will not let you go. And I get that. And if I'm really honest, at one level, I like that. But I'm not sure this image of John the Baptist screaming repent at everyone and anyone is a helpful idea or a biblical idea. John the Baptist may have done his fair share of ranting and raving, but we need to be careful to note who he was specifically referring to and who was on the receiving end of his bark. I don't misunderstand me. I'm not about to urge or argue that John the Baptist is the miniature schnauzer of the gospel. His message does shake your soul to the very core, but yelling at people and missing the incredible hopefulness and loving intent behind his message is a tragedy. Okay, so let's read the text. Let's set this all in context. And as we almost always do, Let's stand for the public reading of God's life-transforming word. Matthew 3, the first 12 verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert or in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey and people went out to him from Jerusalem and from all Judea and from the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax has been laid to the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and it will be thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. And then again, here's these kind of words of Scripture that jar, that we wish weren't there, that we gloss over. But he will also burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please take your seat. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you have a Bible, flick over a chapter. Go to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Because as Jesus launches his ministry, what is his message? It's exactly the same. It's no different. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what does it mean? What's involved? And why is this just as relevant today in Advent 2019 as it was three decades after the first Advent? And referring back to last week, if you were here, and our need to anticipate the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. How does John's message, how does Jesus' major message prepare us, prepare us for that event that is going to happen as we thought about last week? How does repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near? How does that prepare you for the future certainty of the second coming of of Jesus, which is coming down the tracks, that history climaxing moment that is definitely going to happen. How does this message of John the Baptist and Jesus prepare you for that? And how does it ensure that when the second advent happens, you do not find yourself, to quote verse 12, burning up like chaff with unquenchable fire. These are solemn words. Whatever John and Jesus were declaring, it seems that their words have eternal consequences. And so irrespective of what time of year it is, let's reflect on what we're suggesting is a great Christmas message that needs to be constantly repeated. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, as Matthew introduces John, he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of tell us who he is. He's a desert preacher. 
He doesn't just tell us what his main message is and this is it, but he makes it clear, doesn't he, that this character, strange character, this character was promised years and years ago, way before he was born, way before Jesus was born by Isaiah, that major prophet who lives, what, 700 years before this time? And he had predicted that one, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight past him. That one is one day coming. And in Matthew 3, he says, this is the one. This is the promised one. This is the predicted one. John the Baptist is your man. He is the one that is now preparing the way for Jesus. And so by clear implication, what he announces, what he shares, what he declares is so important for you to listen to. And so back to this message that he shares, which is an invitation. It's not a threat. This was an invitation to change, to change direction, to do a U-turn. That is what repent means. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, it means to change direction, to do a 180. Your life is heading one way. You can now do an about turn and face a brand new direction, a God-honoring direction, a God-focused direction, a God-centered direction, a God-led direction. This is a call. This is an invitation to a change of mind, a change of attitude that is going to bring you back to God. It's going to bring you back home. You were walking away from God. Because you were born in sin, you are an enemy of God from birth. You walk in the opposite direction, but now you can repent. You can do that 180, and you can start walking home. Your relationship that you were created for can be restored. That relationship that was damaged by sin. But now through repenting, through confessing your sin, that relationship can be reinstated. And what a privilege. What an opportunity. What a message of hope and love. And the reason that it's even possible is because a new day has dawned. A new era has arrived and is arriving. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is here. God has come into history in a new and a dramatic way at the advent of the Messiah. King Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is breaking in and it's breaking out. And so because of that, because of Jesus, because of Christmas, change is possible. You can begin to see differently. You can begin to think differently. And as a result, you can begin to live differently, act differently, behave differently. You can now enter that kingdom because of Jesus. This kingdom of light instead of darkness. This kingdom of peace and love and mercy. This kingdom of justice and righteousness. This kingdom of hope and not despair. This kingdom of truth and not lies. This kingdom of everlasting life and not death. So repent. It's an invitation. It's not a threat. It's not something to yell at anyone. Repent. You can turn your life right. This is such good news. 
And yes, the stakes are high, as we're about to see or we're going to emphasize. But the opportunity is immense, and it's on the table. It's right there in front of every single one of us this morning. So how did people respond way back then? Well, before we, we go over again how they did respond, Matthew describes John's wardrobe and diet for some reason, no idea why. John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. For those of you who are interested, for those of you who've been following our Game of Thrones series in 2 Kings, you will know that it seems John modeled himself on Elijah because in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8 it says this, Elijah had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. So the Elijah label appealed to John. John wore clothes from the fashion house of Elijah. Love it. Plus he ate locusts and wild honey, so bush tucker trials would have been a gift. But what is even more striking about this man and about this, his message is his appeal. Look at verse 5. What does it say? People are streaming out from Jerusalem and all Judea and from the whole region of the Jordan. Crowds are flocking to hear this life-altering message of change and transformation. And not only hear it, because hearing it is not enough, never has been, never will be. Hearing the message of Jesus is never enough. You've got to do something with it. You've got to respond to it. And here we read that people confessed their sins and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. You see, this invitation to change was music to their ears. They could change from the inside out. They could turn from their previous and old way of life and living and they could start afresh. They could begin a brand new adventure in the dynamic kingdom of God that has come near the kingdom of heaven. They can think differently, see differently, behave differently and who isn't or doesn't want to have that and so they confess their sins it says they turn from they do that 180 that's what repentance means they turn from they confess their sin and they start out in this brand new direction doesn't mean they will never sin again but they've now entered a word they've now, now or a world they've now started to walk in a direction where sin matters before it didn't matter to them. Now it matters. It demands attention now, and so they continue to confess their sins to the one who is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins. Plus, there's this public display of an internal and external transformation as a visible demonstration of the new life that they've found in the kingdom of heaven, and as a symbol of their pledge, they get baptized by John. In the Jordan River, they go public, if you like, with their faith. And although John is, as I've said, a forerunner, he's the one preparing the way, the message that he shares, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, is the exact same message that Jesus shares and still shares and continues to share. It's never stopped sharing. So this opportunity this morning for you and me is live. Because Jesus has come on that first advent and he's lived his life, and he's died on that cross, and he's rose again, and he has ascended. And what's he doing now? He ever lives to intercede, to be our advocate, as we're going to be thinking about this evening. 
And so because of the first coming of Jesus, we have a chance, still have a chance before the second, and we still have a chance to respond and repent and do the 180 and change direction and start coming home. Change the trajectory of our lives forever in the kingdom of heaven. And so no wonder crowds racked up to hear this and embrace this. Although, do you know what? I wonder, why does it seem to have lost its appeal in our culture and context? Why do so many people not give a stuff about this message? Have they misheard it? Have they misunderstood it? Have we miscommunicated it? Back to the Jordan. Because the very next verse in our text is the word but. See, it was all going so well. It's all sounding so good, too good. Then you read, but. It implies there's going to be a shift in the situation. And what happens is that two new groups appear. Two groups of religious Jewish leaders have made their way out to the desert to suss out and to check out what's going on. And although it might seem like they've simply come like everyone else to listen and embrace what's being said, John calls them out, immediately calls them out. And this is where his language changes. This is where the volume goes up a notch or two. The atmosphere alters. This is where the Doberman pincher bears his teeth. And John unleashes a verbal attack on religious hypocrites which is very Jesus-like. He doesn't unleash this on ordinary people, not on the crowds, not on the rank and file of sinners like you and me, but on those who thought they had it sussed, on those who thought they had God sussed and Jesus sussed and salvation sussed. And so he begins by calling them a brood of vapors. He says, you're shrewd and you're dangerous. He doesn't mince his words, and then he hits him with a short, sharp challenge. And boy, do we, this this unsettles. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And this, you see, is a major theme in Matthew's gospel. Because true repentance, true 180, true going in a new direction, true coming home results in a fruitful life and living. It leads to a lifestyle and a behavior that demonstrates genuine repentance and change of heart and change of thinking and change of attitude. By your fruit, by their fruit, people will know if they are the real deal. These religious leaders might have talked the talk, but they didn't walk the talk. Produce fruit, says John, in keeping with repentance. You say you've changed. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You're no different. Where is the evidence of the fruit? Where is the evidence of the fruit in my life? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Gentleness. Goodness, self-control. 
Where is the evidence, David, of those segments of the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in your life? Produce fruit of true repentance. And then it seems that John preempts what they're going to say. Look at verse 9. He says, and, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're not even sure they were going to say that. But the point is clear and would have been crystal clear to everybody listening. Don't think because you can trace your ancestry back to Abraham, because you are somehow born off Abraham, don't think that means you're in. Pedigree has got nothing to do with it. And as Matthew has explained in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Messiah, Jesus, is the true son of Abraham, and apart from him, there is no salvation. Jesus is the one who came to save. That is why his name is called Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so unless you're looking to Jesus, don't come out with this Abraham stuff. Don't say you're born of him. Don't say you can trace your ancestry back to him. Unless you're looking to Jesus, forget it. You see, here is John sinking his teeth and shaking them to their very souls. And then he sounds a real and chilling note of warning in the next verses. And it's back to the issue of fruit because a fruitless Christian is no Christian at all. He says, listen, see if you don't produce good fruit, if you do not genuinely repent, and if you really have done that 180, if you really have changed direction and come home to God and confessed your sins, then you will produce fruit. But if not, then like a fruit, and these are just his words, then like a fruitless tree, you're going to have an axe laid to your base and you're going to be cut down and you're going to be thrown into the fire. I said earlier, the stakes were high. And he, here's the reminder. Here's the warning. The, these religious hypocrites hadn't come to hear about Jesus. They weren't interested in repenting. And so John doesn't miss and hit the wall. Harsh? Yes, maybe. For those kind of people. But you see, for anyone playing any kind of religion card apart from Jesus and apart from the kingdom of heaven. They need to hear it as it is. And so John finishes his speech by focusing on Jesus and he says, listen, if you think I am anything and all of you, and he now addresses all the Christ, all of you have flocked to hear, if you think I am anything, wait till you encounter Jesus. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you repent, your life will be immersed in God by Jesus and you will be purified. What a prospect. What a possibility. What an invitation. But just to kind of drive home the solemnity of the point and to say, listen, these stakes are so high. Verse 12, he finishes, he says, but if you reject this offer of repentance, if you just continue walking away from God, 
doing your own thing, living your own life. And you're free to do that. But if you keep doing that, judgment awaits. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus and not repenting are truly horrendous. You will burn up with the chaff in unquenchable fire. That's John's language, that's not mine. And I take no pleasure in repeating it or sharing it. And yet the stakes are this high. And so, on the second Sunday of Advent, please hear this invitation. Repent. 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 For the kingdom of heaven has come to you. And this is one of the best ways you'll prepare for Christmas. This is one of the best ways you'll prepare for the first Advent. This is one of the best ways you will prepare for the second Advent. And if you're here this morning and you also rank, because this needing to change direction in our lives, to say, we, we keep messing up, I keep messing up. And if you're here this morning and you recognize, I need to change the direction in a certain area of my life, then make that choice this morning to repent, to do the 180, to start walking in a new direction. Plus, don't forget that other challenge. Add John the Baptist to your nativity scene this year.